You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. God be praised that those who are in Christ will also be raised. God be praised that this is true of our brother, John Wilhart. A couple of brief words about John before we dig into this text of John 16. I was thinking about John this week. I rem- There's a couple of things I distinctly remember. Many of you know him. Some of you might not have known him, that he had left or had been homebound and then left to, before you got to meet him. But he was the organist here at Hope for over a decade, also an elder and a president of the congregation. And I remember when I was with John a lot when he would meet new people and he would introduce himself to people. And one of the things that would come up in the conversation very quickly, he would say this. He would say, uh, vanity doesn't run in my family. It gallops. <laughs> John, you shouldn't say that so often. <laughs> he knew, John knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he was saved by God's grace. And and this is the second thing that I would remember about John, is that there was hardly a time when you would talk about the hymns of the church and the grace of God that these hymns preached, that he would simply, he couldn't finish his own sentences because he was weeping for joy. His own tears would stop his conversation because he knew, he knew that the blood of Jesus was his salvation. He knew that in spite of his sin, he had a Savior named Jesus. He, he knew that. He had that fantastic confidence. And you could hear it as he played the organ. We'll sing a little bit later, I Walk in Danger All the Way. That was his favorite. And you can hear, I, my, my walk is the last stanza. My walk is heavenward all the way. And I don't know how he would do it, but he would pull out every button and cram down the volume so that the whole place would shake because he wanted to sing not only with his voice but also with the organ that his walk was heavenly all the way. And he knew that death surrounded him all the way but that the angels would accompany him to heaven at last. And especially, we'll sing as our closing hymn, we all believe in one true God. Do the same thing with the last stanza. We all confess the Holy Ghost who comes to give us faith and life and the forgiveness of all of our sins. And God be praised. I think it's maybe especially on today, cantata, the, the day in the church here where we especially consider how the Holy Spirit teaches the church to sing, that we consider how we confess our faith in the Lord Jesus, not only with what we say, but also with what we sing. And that not only do our mouths, but also this entire building, the organ that's there, sings the praises of God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life for ours. God be praised. It's also fitting for us to remember in the season of Easter that the Christian is is never saying goodbye, but only we'll see you soon. Because we know that we will meet again in the resurrection. And we pray that that will come quickly. Now that's the setting of the text in John 16. We we had it already last week when Jesus says, A little while and you won't see me, a little while more and you will see me. And then Jesus says to to the disciples that are gathered there, 
it's good for you that I go away. Now we say, how could it possibly be good that Jesus would go away to the grave and then 40 days after the resurrection that he would ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father where we would see him no more? And we say, how can this possibly be good? How can this possibly be to our advantage? But Jesus answers that question in the text. Nevertheless, he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now the key word in the text there is that word Helper. That's the title that Jesus is giving to the Holy Spirit. Some of you remember, I think the old King James had Comforter. And some of the new Bible versions have counselor. We've been talking about this word for like a month in our Wednesday morning Bible class. So if you're in that class, you'll have to just be patient. We'll cover a little of the ground quickly. The Greek word there is the word parakletos. It's a, it's a common word in the verb form. In fact, it's like a hundred, 110 times. It's all over the New Testament as a verb. And it means helper or, or sorry, it means to help or especially it means to encourage or to urge, or to exhort, or to appeal, or to invite, but it has to do with this idea of encouragement as a verb. But as a noun, it's only used five times. And four of those times are right around the text where we're hanging around, John 14, 15, and 16. All four times there in the text, Jesus uses that word as a title of the Holy Spirit. And then the only other time it's used is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where John says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paracleton with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So that this word is used four times to describe the work of the Holy Spirit and one time to describe the work of Jesus. And it's a hard word to translate. That's why it has so many different meanings. But what's really going on? To, to understand the word, we've got to imagine the courtroom. Because it is a legal word. So now we know if, you, you know, the courts now are kind of locked away. It's in the courtroom. It takes forever if you go there. But in the ancient world, this is not how it was. The Hebrew custom was that they would have a courtroom right at the gate of the city. The main entrance to the city, wherever the gate was, and people were hanging around and coming in and going out, then the elders would be there, and they would be holding court. So if you had an accusation to bring to someone, you'd take them to the city gate. And there you could accuse them of something. And there they would defend themselves. And there the elders would make a judgment. This is where like legal transactions were held and all this sort of stuff. So like at the time of when Boaz wants to marry Ruth, he has to go to the gate to make sure that it's all going to be legal and everything like that. That was the Hebrew custom. The, the, the Roman custom was a bit different. Instead of being at the gate, they would have it right in the center of the city. And the Romans liked to build these big like open courtyards and you'd have the shopping mall along one side and then you'd have the city buildings along the other side and they'd have a seat there, the bema seat, the judgment seat, where the procurator, the proconsul, the, the judge would come and sit. And if the judge was sitting there, then court was open. And you could just drag anybody into the court. I mean, this, this, it, it helps us to understand how the, how the Jews on, when Jesus was being tried, could just take him in the morning, you know, without an appointment or anything. Just drag him over to Pilate and say, we want to have a court case right now. Well, this is, the Roman system of jurisprudence was very efficient. If someone, if you were a shop owner and you just caught someone stealing your 
I don't know what the old Romans sold back. Sandals. You caught someone stealing sandals, you just grab them by the scruff of the neck and drag them to the court and say, this guy was stealing sandals from my shop. And the judge would say, do you have a witness? And the witness would say, yeah, we saw. And then you'd throw him in jail. Maybe you'd have to wait a couple of days before he was flogged or whatever. But you could just do it right then. That's the, that's the picture of the courtroom. Now let's say that you were, that you were in some sort of shop and the shop owner grabbed you and he took you before the court and he said, I caught this guy stealing the sandals. And there you are, and he's accusing you, and you're making your own defense. But let's just say that you were, you had some friends who were with you who knew you didn't do it. And they would come and stand alongside you in front of the judge there, and they would say, no, he, he didn't steal the sandals. I was with him. He was, he was going to buy them. Or he, I, we don't know what this guy's talking about. We were, we were out fishing. We don't even know who this guy is or whatever. The person that stands there next to you to defend you, to defend your, to defend your case in court, that's the paraclete. That's the advocate. That's the helper. That's the comforter. That's the defender. That's what that word means. The person that's next to you in court. Now imagine, imagine how wonderful it is that Jesus gives this title to the Holy Spirit. And he says, you'll be in trouble, but I'm going to send to stand next to you another who will argue your cause, who will defend your case. I will give you a paraclete, even God the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus means this first quite literally, so that when we're dragged into court for our confession of Christ, the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say. Remember this text? This is a stunning text in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So Jesus says, in the first case, when it's time for the Christians to be persecuted, when it's time to be dragged before the pagan courts and to be accused of sedition and, and evil and all sorts of stuff because of the name of Jesus, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come to you and give you the words to say. Now, this promise is not only, though, for that very specific instance of persecution, when we're fighting out the Christian confession in court, but it's also as we stand in the court of public opinion, or we stand in the, in the court of the conversation of our culture, or even, and maybe even most especially, we remember that there is a constant courtroom case happening in our own hearts and in our own consciences. And this is where the chief work of the Holy Spirit is. When, when, the, when the judgment is happening in your own heart. Now remember, and we've talked about this, in fact, in the last couple of weeks even, about how every person is, has this constant trial happening in their own heart, trying to determine their own righteousness and by what standard and by whose determination, and so forth. But we know that the law of God is at work accusing each one of us, and in fact, each person, so that there is a court happening, a case unfolding 
in your heart and in your conscience. And this is where the Holy Spirit works. And Jesus is going to outline the three chief works that the Holy Spirit will do in this courtroom. He says the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. That's the work that the Holy Spirit does. And we want to zoom in on that. But before we do, I want to just, I want to make sure that we have this connection between, between the work that the Holy Spirit does and the work that Jesus does. The work that the Holy Spirit does in our own hearts and the work that Jesus is doing in heaven. Remember, Jesus says, it's good for you that I depart so that the Holy Spirit will come. So there's a connection between the departure of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what is that connection? Jesus takes up His job in the heavenly courtroom as our advocate there before the Father so that the Holy Spirit can take up His work in the courtroom of our own conscience as His work of advocating for us. So that we get this. There are two courts. One is heavenly, and the other is in our own hearts. And Jesus is in the heavenly court, even right now before the Father, as our paraclete, as our advocate, advocating for us, preaching his own death and resurrection, bringing to the courtroom in heaven the evidence of his own blood, of his suffering and death. And there, God the Father is declaring you innocent. And the same trial is happening with each one of us right now. How do I stand before God? How will I be judged on the last day? Am I holy or am I not holy? And Jesus, who is doing the work of declaring you holy in heaven, sends the Holy Spirit so that you would be declared holy also on earth. So that the work of Jesus on the cross is brought to heaven where it matters eternally, and it's brought to earth by the Holy Spirit where it matters for our own comfort and our own peace. So Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Helper, the Advocate, when the Paraclete comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and concerning righteousness and concerning judgment. So first, the work of conviction. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. Now, we want to consider how it is necessary for the Holy Spirit to teach us that we are sinners. It is a stunning thing. If you were just to sort of like take a step back and look at the Christian doctrine and say, here's what Christians say about the world, that God created the world, that we started as good, that we fell into sin, that we're all sinners, that we deserve God's wrath, that Jesus, that God became a man and died for our sins and rose on the third day and that He's coming back, He's coming again to judge the quick and the dead and there will be the resurrection of the body and eternal life. Like if you look at if you look at all the things that we say that Christians say about what's true, you would say what is the what should be the most obvious? And it seems to me like much more obvious than God created the world, and much more obvious than that Jesus is coming again, much more obvious than the fact that God became a man. The most obvious thing about our Christian doctrine should be that we are fallen, that we're sinners. That should be the most obvious thing to all of us. But it's not. Stunningly, we are ignorant of our own sin. And you see this just when you ask a person. If they're a good person, you, you can just ask someone on the street, are you, do you think you're a good person? And what does everybody say? Yes, or pretty good, or better than average, <laughs> or I try. 
We might, we might know that we make mistakes, but we still think of ourselves that we are good people. We cling to that. We, we defend it with our lives. So it is necessary for the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, to show us our sinfulness, our hidden corruption. Psalm 19 says, cleanse me from my hidden faults. And this is one of the marks of this fallen world is that we don't even know our own sins. We don't know how bad off we are. We're brought forth in iniquity and sin are we conceived. But this is hidden from us. Now it's important that the Holy Spirit does this first work of conviction. Because remember how it goes when you enter into a courtroom, the first thing that happens is you have to enter a plea. How do you plea? You go to court and they say, how do you plea, innocent or guilty? And the Holy Spirit is teaching us, the Holy Spirit is convicting us that our plea is guilty. We are not innocent. No one is righteous. No, not one. So says King David and so preaches the Apostle Paul. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death and that is what we have deserved. Now, how the courtroom before God shapes up matters on how you enter your plea. If you go before God and plead your own innocence, then just about everything goes wrong. Because then everyone is against you. Jesus and Moses and your friends and your enemies and your history and your heart all plead or all claim your own guilt. And you will be condemned. But when we stand before God and plead guilty, when we say that we are sinners, then something very different happens. Moses is there to condemn, but Jesus is our advocate. And so is the Holy Spirit defending us. Not not with our own righteousness, not with our own innocence, not with our own good deeds, not with our own efforts or desires, defending us instead with the blood of Jesus, which with His sacrifice, with His suffering. This is why, by the way, when we come to stand here before the Lord's name and and before the table of the Lord where the body and blood of Jesus will be, it's why the first thing we do when we come into this place is make a plea. I, a poor, miserable sinner, Confess unto thee all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended thee. In other words, we come before this place and we say, I'm not innocent. I'm not, I'm not good. I'm a sinner. I've deserved God's wrath, His temporal wrath, His eternal wrath. That is truly, in fact, what I deserve. Because the Holy Spirit does this work of convicting us and the world of sin. But, in fact, this is only the first work of the Holy Spirit. And in in a profound way, this work of convicting the world of sin is preparatory for the next two works because the second work then comes along fairly quickly. And this is the work of justification. I will convict the world of sin and concerning righteousness. Jesus says, verse 10, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. We want to spend just a little bit of time with that word righteousness because it is key to understanding the Scriptures and the doctrine of the Scriptures. So, okay, so I want you to ask yourself this question. When I say the word righteousness, what do you think of? What comes to your mind 
when you hear that word righteousness, or the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. I'll tell you, the first thing that comes to my mind is God's own standard of right and wrong. It is the Ten Commandments. It's good works. When it says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness, it seems like a continuation of convicting the world of sin. In other words, the Holy Spirit will not only show me what I've done wrong, He'll also tell me what I ought to be doing to be doing things right. But we want to remember that there are different kinds of righteousnesses. Righteousies. Righteousim. There are different kinds of righteousnesses. There are, for example, home, there's a home righteousness. There's, it's just like good manners that you say please and thank you. Or there's a civil righteousness where you keep the law, you drive the speed limit, you pay your taxes. And then there's a, there's a righteousness that comes from the Ten Commandments where we keep the Ten Commandments, where we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and, and heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength, where we love our neighbor as ourself. And that's a righteousness of which we all fall short. But all of those kinds of righteousnesses are an active righteousness. The, right, the things that we're to do, acts of our own will. But there is a completely different kind of righteousness, and that's the righteousness of the gospel, which is a passive righteousness. That's the righteousness that comes to us as a gift. That's the righteousness that's not achieved by our doing or by our working, but by our believing and by our receiving. Now, Dear Christians, the world knows all about this active righteousness, but the passive righteousness of the gospel, it must be taught by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Because we all want to be saved by our works. We all want to be righteous by our efforts. We all want to achieve some sort of standard of perfection by our own doings, but the Holy Spirit comes and says, you cannot. The only way to be righteous is to have faith in Christ, to trust in the Advocate who stands before the Father, to throw in your lot with Jesus. And when we trust in God, we have this righteousness. When we trust the promise of the Gospel, the perfect life and death of Jesus, His perfect keeping of the law, it's all handed over to you by imputation. It's put, it's put to your account. It's as if you're standing before the judge and you're found to be guilty and now you have to pay the fine and someone walks into the courtroom and pays the fine for you and that money goes to your account and you are set free. The righteousness of Jesus is applied to you so that just like your sin was on Him and His suffering, so now His righteousness is on your name so that God the Father looks at you. Listen, God the Father looks at each one of you And he sees you not according to your sins, not according to your breaking of the law, not according to the things that you've failed to do, not according to your lovelessness, not according to your fear, not according to your idolatry, not according to any of the breaking of his commandments. He sees you instead as if you had kept the commandments absolutely perfectly, just like Jesus did. He 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 is just as pleased with you as he is with his own son. For he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that the righteousness that you have by faith in the promise is not even the righteousness of Adam and Eve before the fall. It's the righteousness of Jesus. The perfection of Jesus. The holiness of Jesus. That belongs to you. Now imagine, imagine how the judgment day was, or let's say it like this, how the judgment day would be for Jesus when it's time for all humanity to be judged 
And Jesus stands in line first. And he says, judge me first. Should I be in heaven or in hell? Can you imagine how fast God the Father would throw open the gates of heaven for Jesus? How quickly the angels would throw gold down so he could walk right in. Because Jesus, perhaps alone, is perfect and holy and righteous and welcomed into heaven. That is the same welcome that you will receive on the judgment day because you have that same righteousness. You have that righteousness. The perfection of Jesus. So that even though you are guilty of sin, you are absolved. You are forgiven. You are made declared holy and righteous in the sight of God. And Jesus is busy doing that work right now at the throne of God in heaven, praying your name, declaring His blood for your righteousness, and the Holy Spirit comes to do the same thing in your heart. And how does He do it? He does it when you hear the absolution that your sins are forgiven. He does it when you hear the Word of God. He does it when you hear the preaching of the Gospel. That's the Holy Spirit preaching to you the same thing that Jesus is preaching in heaven. And He brings that righteousness to us. He brings that righteousness to you. So that there is nothing to fear. Do you see? I mean, do you, how much did Jesus have to fear in his death? How much did Jesus have to fear to stand before the Father? That's how much you have to fear. Not at all. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because Jesus says, I go to the Father. And then, and the work of the Holy Spirit is not done, there's the third part. Because Jesus goes on and says he will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and then concerning judgment. Now we hear that word judgment and we say, oh boy, that's probably trouble. Now it was like law concerning sin, righteousness, gospel. Now it seems like it's back to the law. The Holy Spirit's going to convict us concerning judgment. But listen to what Jesus says. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The judgment that the Holy Spirit comes to preach in your heart and your conscience is not your judgment, it's the devil's judgment. It's not your overthrow, it's the devil's overthrow. It's not your destruction, it's the devil. This is what the Holy Spirit is preaching so that we, the Holy Spirit preaches to us, that we triumph over the world and the flesh and the devil by this righteousness which is given to us by the Gospel. Now, there's a change that happens in our own minds by faith, worked by the Holy Spirit. I have to maybe confess to you guys that, that, uh, that I myself am right in the middle of this change. The Holy Spirit is changing my own mind about this. And I think He's changing all of our minds about this. But it's this change like this. We start off naturally afraid of the devil. We think of the devil as this great mighty enemy that that is coming and that he's dangerous and that he threatens us and that he can destroy us and wreck things and tear apart the church and the state and the home and all of this sort of stuff. But the Holy Spirit works a change in our own mind. And this is the first. He gives us the courage to stand and to resist. And as we stand and resist the devil, something begins to happen. Instead of seeing the devil as something frightful, we begin to see the devil as Jesus sees the devil, which is like this, that he is defeated. 
I've shown you guys this picture of this Cronach painting of the law and the gospel. It's a beautiful painting. It has two panels. And on one side is the picture of the law. And on the law side, Jesus is sitting as judge and a sword is coming out of his, thro- his mouth. And there's Adam and Eve at the tree and the snake is coiled around it. And there at the bottom is Moses and death and the devil, this beastly thing with this long pike and it's poking this guy into the flames. There the devil and death are triumphing. But then you look on the other side of the painting and there is Jesus flying from heaven. It's really, he's flying from heaven to the Virgin Mary who's standing on top of a hill and he's flying down from heaven with a cross on his shoulder, a little baby carrying a cross. And there in the background is the bronze serpent and the people being saved from the serpent. And there in the front is Jesus on the, uh, on the cross and the Lamb of God holding the flag there. And there's John the Baptist preaching to, to the same guy, but on the gospel side, instead of being driven by, the, by death and sin into the flames of hell, there he stands with his hands open and a stream of blood is shooting out of the side of Jesus with a little dove there and landing right on the guy's face. Can you imagine the picture? And there at the bottom of the cross is the open tomb and Jesus is standing and under his feet are death and the devil. On the, on the law side, they're there triumphing, but on the gospel side, they're crushed under the feet of Jesus. And this is the preaching of the scriptures that Jesus by his death and resurrection has destroyed death. Your death has destroyed the devil, has triumphed over him in the cross so that the devil is a defeated enemy. For this reason, the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Remember that? And he did not fail to do what he came to do. Now listen to what James says about this. Submit yourself, this is James chapter 4, verse, oh, I don't know, I don't have it written down. Maybe, I bet it's verse 7 and 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, dear saints, look, this text, it does not only tell us how we ought to think about the devil, that we should flee him, but this text also tells you how the devil thinks about you. What the devil sees when he looks at you. Can you imagine it? And what do you think it is? We would think that when the devil looks at us, that he would see lunch. (laughs) But it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So that the devil looks at you, clothed in the royal robes of your baptism, equipped with the armor of light by the gospel, forgiven in the name of Jesus, and holy and perfect and a bearer of the Holy Spirit with the sword of the Spirit, God's own word in your hands, the devil looks at you clothed in the righteousness of Christ and the devil is afraid of you, of you. He, he, can't, he turns and runs away because of the gifts that Christ gives. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment because the ruler of this world has been 
judged. He has no claim on you. You belong to Jesus. Your life is His. Your suffering is His. Your death is His. Your sin is His. Your past is His. Your future is His. Your name is His. Your life is His. You belong to Him. And He prays for you right now. And the Father hears His prayers. And He answers them. Now, dear saints, this is the work that the Holy Spirit does. This is the work that the Holy Spirit is doing now. And this is the work that the Holy Spirit does in every place and in every time that is sanctified by the Word of God in prayer. So may we rejoice in it. And may we sing God's praises that the Holy Spirit has convicted us of our sin, convicted us of the righteousness of Christ, and shown us that the devil is overthrown. May God grant it for Christ's sake. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. The peace of God that passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to The Word of Hope.